So our, our funding decisions are entirely data-driven. Uh, so what, what's nice about that is it kind of takes the bias out of decision-making. Like we don't, um, we don't look at, you know, what gender they are, or what race they are from, or what, what even uh, geography they come from. So as a result, it kind of just lets the, the quality of the business speak for itself. They plug in the data, we run through the numbers, and we can present them with offers. Um, so we actually found ourselves funding kind of a lot of these businesses that I think traditionally would have been kind of written off. This is Made at McGill, an origin story podcast about McGill University's makers, aka entrepreneurs and innovators. How did these students, researchers, and alumni figure out how to make the world a better place? Well, it's complicated, but keep listening. It's a good story. This show is brought to you by the McGill Dobson Center for Entrepreneurship. Our mission is to inspire, teach, and develop world-class entrepreneurs. You can learn more at mcgill.ca slash dobson. This episode is brought to you by Interac, Canada's leading payment brand. Interac has chosen an average of 16 million times daily to pay and exchange money. To learn more, visit interac.ca. I'm your host, Mo Akif, and on today's show, our guest is Charlie Feng, co-founder at ClearBank, a venture capital firm led by Michelle Romano of Dragon's Den fame. ClearBank is the biggest e-commerce investor in the world. In 2019, they had the goal of backing 2,000 businesses with a billion dollars in non-dilutive capital by the end of the year. And as you'll hear in the conversation that ensues, they succeeded. Our conversation spans across Charlie's career growth, lessons learned from his previous startups, and even some personal development stuff. Of course, we also dive into how ClearBank is different from other investment firms, including their 20-minute term sheet, the two metrics that they base their investment decisions on, and how they funded eight times more female founders than the venture capital industry average. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Charlie. Each of your career moves have been, in my opinion, substantial. You went from employee at uh, DBRS, I believe, uh, to founder of your startup, Hemingley, to founder of an investment firm that funds other startups. Can you walk us through the thinking behind each of these moves or these transitions? Yeah, for sure. So, so I studied uh, finance at McGill. And kind of like everyone else, uh, uh, I wanted to be an investment banker or a management consultant. It was kind of the two popular paths, uh, going to network events, um, trying to get an interview. Uh, but I didn't really know what I was doing and didn't really get too far. Um, so like you said, started my career in uh, bond rating. Uh, I like data and wanted to kind of learn more about uh, the algorithms and kind of, kind of what caused the financial crisis. Uh, it was a bit of a like, curiosity there. Um, so I thought it was a good place to kind of see what's behind the scenes. Um, I think what they didn't tell really me in, in school is that like 90% of your job as an analyst is really about gathering the data, cleaning the data, and uh, rather than anything that touches uh, models. Um, so uh, on the side, while I was doing that, we were also building Hemingway, my first company. Uh, it was a marketing automation tool to help authors uh, build their audience and sell more books, uh, for lack of better words. Um, long story short, uh, didn't go so well, like had a lot of ups and downs, but more downs, I guess, but I can tell you more about that after. Um, I think the, 
actually McGill and the Dobson Center uh, kind of kick, kicked us off into that journey. We were lucky enough to get into MIT's kind of startup accelerator uh, when we first got funded. Um, early days, we, uh, to, to kind of conserve runway, um, we were kind of uh, three co-founders living in a 400 square foot studio. Uh, it was a table and three cots. That's all it was, a table to make calls and a place to sleep. Um, and uh, while we did have a couple of successes, like we brought a few to bestsellers and all that, uh, it was kind of, uh, as a first time founder, many of the things that could have went wrong from fundraising to product development uh, that I kind of, I guess in a way kind of took for granted kind of coming out of the, uh, kind of co- co- coming out of a, uh, McGill as a student, um, they all kind of went sideways. So uh, when I started ClearBank, um, I was hoping to not make those mistakes. <laughs> so met my co-founders uh, and uh, started ClearBank. We, uh, the, the, the motivation was really, can we help um, other founders kind of get better access to capital. Uh, like if you think about it, founders in the last two decades um, had to really give up majority of their company in order to keep growing. Um, so some examples are like Lyft, when they IPO'd, the founders have less than 5%. The Etsy founders, for example, uh, when they IPO'd, uh, the founders had less than 1%. Um, and that just kind of didn't make too much sense to us. Uh, so, uh, I mean, early days, it was just us, uh, Kind of living kind of similar story uh slightly uh bigger uh, house if you will but um uh, we lived and kind of worked in the same house in san francisco uh, i guess one one advice i might have is uh, like to like choose your co-founders well um mm-hmm. because they, what they say about it's a it's a marriage is actually not too far-fetched you'll be spending 16 hours a day with them for the next five to ten years so if you don't like hanging with them hanging out with them it's going to be a rough next few years. So, um, but on the contrary, like don't get married to the solution or the problem because the solutions you'll keep iterating and that'll change. And even the problem that you pick that you start off with, that could also shift or change um, as you get more learnings. Okay. And in terms of uh, your, your career itself, like to what do you attribute your at least, you know, from the outside perspective, your very impressive career trajectory. Like oftentimes people will make, you know, uh, yeah. jump around different companies and make a few lateral moves or like small jumps, but you seem to have made like very large leaps upward each time. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm flattered. Uh, like, I guess from the outside, it, it, it looks like kind of like step function changes. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, but really... It's a whole lot of trying out different things, uh, mostly failures, to be honest, and kind of getting lucky with a couple that panned out. I think what doesn't show up on uh, my, my resume is kind of like all the failures. Like there was an HR company that never got anywhere. I was a front-end developer for kind of a social media company that also uh, didn't go so well. There was a bunch of comp- uh, projects that like didn't even have names that failed too quickly. Um, funny enough, I still own the domain names to a bunch of these because I, I, at that time I was like, oh, I pay for the three-year discount. Uh, that, that was a bad idea. That's um, very so, helpful to know, yeah. Yeah, so so more often than not, they don't pan out the way I, I'd hoped or at least you know, hoped at the start. Uh, but you kind of keep on trying and you stay optimistic. And I think that's um, what's helped me at least. Uh, and I think one of the common, uh, I guess, common, uh, like something I'd attribute to uh, this path is really to, as they like the common advice is like take ownership, solve problems, and add value. Uh, 
and I think that's that's perhaps a little vague. So the the way I would really break that down is um, like to be very to be very frank to just kind of do the work and don't wait for someone to give you that thumbs up or to validate you. Uh, so I think one example is uh, yeah. So so my first job, for example, we were pouring through kind of hundreds of financial statements. That that was kind of the job. Uh, your your job was to parse out. Um, the key metrics from every company, because what the way one company would categorize revenue is different from an, another one that might tuck it away in the footnotes. Um, nor is our job as analysts to kind of compare everything apples to apples. Um, and as you can imagine, kind of like there, there's so many inefficiencies there. Um, and I think uh, like my first take was kind of the same. I was kind of like, hey, <laughs> trying to pitch my manager or my managing director uh, and uh, like, Hey, can we automate some of this? And you can't really blame them, who's you know been there for twenty years as a, as a, as kind of a managing director, to look at a twenty-two year old and say, "Oh, well, go 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 back and do your work." Like, I don't. <laughs> what are you talking about, right? Um, so I think what has helped me along the way is whenever these problems, I suppose, come up, um, I, I would just kind of, I guess, try to solve it in the best way I could and do uh, what I would want. Um, to make my life easier. So what I started was kind of, I would write these little scripts, uh, kind of more macros or so, uh, to automate the work, something that would take an hour or get done in kind of a click of a button. And I was like, oh, this is this is actually quite useful. I uh, started sharing with some of my coworkers and uh, kind of before long, I had a, like a whole operations going, uh, running macros overnight. Um, didn't really have permissions from security or kind of uh, from from the uh, the tech side, the IT side, um, and those computers oftentimes they uh, they had security, so you couldn't run things overnight because um, there were timeouts if you just stepped away from the computer for too long. So what we did was we had this uh, we installed this little program that would essentially kind of like move the mouse uh, by a little bit every two <laughs> seconds just to keep the computer on. Uh, so we would be running all these things that would just save us tons of hours um, of work. And, and then kind of like afterwards, the manager actually came to, came to me and was like, hey, can we like automate more of this and do it more properly, I guess. So they brought wow. in IT and product and all of that. Uh, so, so I think my advice would just be like um, people and myself included, it's, it's, a, it's everyone wants to kind of seek validation before doing something, kind of get that thumbs up or okay. Uh, but it's actually much easier to just flip it around um, and the like go out there, fix the problem, suggest an alternative solution. Um, and it's not just to like suggest and put your hands up saying, hey, guys, it's broken, but it's to like actually do it or write a proposal on how you would do it. Um, and and also be OK that like half the time this will get either ignored or it won't go the way you think it would, uh, which happens to me all the time, too. But it's. Uh, it's kind of just going out and do it. And that's gotten me a, a long way. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, for ClearBank, what, what is your day-to-day -day like and what problems, you know, speaking of problems, what problems do you focus on solving yeah. over there right now? I guess in, in, in short, it's, uh, it's day-to-day uh, -day operations of the business. Um, and what that really means is it changes um, kind of every few quarters based on the like what stage of the company we're at. So when the company first started, it was really product market fit focused. So we were trying to talk to our customers, trying to understand their problems, building MVPs. And I think uh, a tip for kind of new founders is 
don't underestimate how hacky you can get because all that really matters is you're proving out that your product works. Um, so in the early days, for example, uh, when we were testing out kind of a new product for Uber drivers, uh, well, we wanted to reach Uber drivers. Um, so we started off by finding Uber drivers on LinkedIn, you know, who put their titles Uber drivers that ran out uh, of leads pretty quickly. So um, we were like, wait, why, why don't we just order an Uber? So we <laughs> took turns ordering Ubers, uh, hopping in and then pitching them on the idea of doing our Uber ride. Uh, and those uh, early Uber discounts really helped us a lot. But it, it, the early days, I think it was really a lot of talking to customers, a lot of this early um, customer development. Uh, and then the next stage of the company, kind of the scaling side, is usually around Series A, uh, if not a bit, a bit more forward that. Uh, it's really focused around the growth. Um, now that we kind of got a product that customers want, how can we, so a lot of my time was spent on marketing, a bit of product, but more marketing and growth, uh, how to reach the customers. Nowadays, it's more kind of the, I guess, expansion side. So we have a lot of data, um, we have a, a lot of customers, and it's uh, it's a lot of, uh, I guess, from the outside, I suppose it's called strategy. Um, and in school, I've always thought uh, strategy to be some kind of silver bullet or some innovative plan that would kind of like beat all your competition. Uh, but, but in reality, it, there are no silver bullets. And I think what I've come to realize or learn about strategy is that it's all just segmentation and kind of listening to uh, your customers. It's trying to figure out um, what is the almost like the hardest thing that you could be doing uh, that your, customer, your, your competitors probably can't that your customers want. So what we do is, you know, you look at the data by, you look at market by deal size, maybe the customers by their company size, by geo, by use case. And you're basically trying to segment and trying to figure out instead of blanketing the whole market, how can we better tailor our business um, to specific use cases? Uh, and I think one lesson that's done me well here is um, when your gut differs from the data, uh, dig deeper. So, because those who kind of just listen to their gut and not the data generally kind of go sideways and fails, but also those who just blindly follows the data, uh, you risk kind of optimizing for a local max. Um, so you kind of want to marry the two a little, if you will. Do you have any specific examples that come to mind when you think of that lesson? Yeah, I think uh, actually one that comes to, to mind quite, uh, um, quite, quite recently is uh, like, we were looking at um, customers who, uh, who, and kind of observing who are the best customers on our platform and how are they, uh, like, what are their behaviors? And I think one of the things that um, my, my gut was actually saying was at first was that customers who uh, tend to spend more on, uh, for example, the more kind of ads you spend, um, the more Facebook ads you spend, the more kind of marketing you spend, the better. Because uh, right. that's kind of an ROI generating positive activity, um, but then that was my gut, and then the data was kind of showing something different, and that didn't quite make sense for me. Because um, I was like, okay, well, if you don't spend your money on Facebook, that's not good. Um, as we dug deeper, it was we arrived at kind of the findings that it was more of an optimal mix. Like if you spend all your money on Facebook, it's not good either, because that means are you spending money on your to keeping the lights on? Are you buying enough inventory? Are you kind of doing all the other parts of the business, that's also important. Um, if you don't spend any money on ads, it's also not good because then you can't get customers, right? So 
I think that was something that initially I had a different hypothesis in my head um, and the data was a bit different. Uh, but I think listening to just one or the other would have been wrong. Uh, but rather you, but, but what I mean by when the gut differs from the data, really it, 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 it demonstrates a misunderstanding of some part of the business. So the more you dig deeper, the more you'll learn about it. And then you can really take that learning and apply it somewhere. Okay. Now, rewinding a little bit, you mentioned earlier that some of the skills you developed at Hemingley serve you at ClearBank. What are some of the lessons learned from Hemingley? Could you quickly, uh, so you described the company as a marketing automation tool for authors. Um, If you want to add to that, feel free, but also tell us what went well, what didn't, and what you'd do differently if you could go back in time. Mm. Um, So funny enough, actually, Hemingley was kind of two companies tucked into one. Uh, Our Hemingley 2.0 was a B2B company, so we never bothered changing the name. Uh, So there were a lot of uh, kind of good lessons learned from there. I think a lot of things we did well. um, So the second iteration, or Hemingley 2.0, we were a chatbot uh, that sat in kind of Slack channels, usually sales and marketing channels, and we helped them automate kind of repetitive work. So we did anything from lead gen to code emails uh, to competitive research uh, to growth hacks, you name it. Um, And... I think one thing that we did well was we really focused a lot on the uh, testing out a lot of the customer, uh, figuring out whatever the customer needs and figuring out a way for us to solve those problems. We were very customer centric in solving those problems. Um, a, lot, a lot of problems as well, a lot of mistakes were made as well. I think one that comes to mind that uh, um, is potentially useful for, I'd say, new founders or, or new grads is uh, I remember when I... Uh, in my first time fundraising, I did a, a pretty terrible job. I was the person fundraising, so it was all on me. Um, uh, and we ended up talking to a handful of investors uh, who, and they ranged from somewhere kind of not interested, somewhere interested, somewhere, hey, I can write you a check tomorrow. Um, but what ended up happening was that the uh, the the calls will end up often ending up with, cool, so who else do you have on board? And you know, when is this deal closing? And because we never really did a good job of creating momentum and urgency, kind of time kills all deals. So uh, like a big lesson there, a good, good rule of thumb is kind of like try to group all of your fundraising as much as you can, preferably in like in a month or two. Um, and be very rigorous. Like you got to run it as a process that if it's, an, if it's not a yes, it's a no. Like a maybe is a no. If, they, if, if someone says, well, but, you know, I would like to see X, Y, Z it's likely a no for this round as well. Um, and uh, I mean, it's kind of similar to that of like job interviews, right? So it's, if you don't want to be sending out an application every four weeks, rather you want to be uh, sending out all your applications kind of together so you can have the interviews all bunched together. Uh, and then another tip is probably to set a closing date or else these the fundraising will drag on. And I think fundraising is a very taxing um, uh, activity that if you just let it drag on, you won't be able to focus on actually building the business. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now moving back to the present, uh, can you explain how ClearBank is different from other investment firms and explain how your 20 minute term sheet works? Yeah. Um, so I think to, to start off, uh, ClearBank is all, uh, everything's kind of data driven. Um, so we're, uh, uh, and to kind of give a give an overview, ClearBank is the, the fastest, most affordable way for founders to kind of fund their business. We're also the biggest e-commerce investors in the world. 
Um, and, the, and the way the way the way it works is that we essentially use AI to assess the the financial health and the trajectory of these these companies, and we invest anything from ten thousand dollars to ten million dollars um, in less than twenty four hours, and it's paid back in a kind of a revenue share model. Um, so, for example, if we were to invest hundred k uh, and charge a and uh, we charge a six percent flat fee, um, and they pay us back with five percent of their revenue, uh, they will pay us back a total of one hundred and six k. Um, so whether that takes them uh, a year to pay back or longer or shorter, um, it's, it, it's we're, we're looking for that 106K back. And the 20 minute term sheets, it's essentially the, using the same kind of underwriting and underlying technology we have to, uh, to provide people with um, term sheet that's kind of akin to the ones you would get from a VC uh, within 20 minutes after connecting your, um, your data with us. Okay, and you know, speaking of the uh, the AI that you guys use, I'm assuming ad spend and unit economics are some of the things that go into that model. What makes ad spend and unit economics so valuable as metrics that you are effectively making your investment decisions almost entirely based on them? And can you quickly define them first? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, uh, unit economics and ad ad spend is probably uh, two of the things that we look most critically at. Um, and so, so uh, ad spend, I think the, the, the metric I would say is it's not just how much you spend on a Facebook ad or a Google uh, ad, for example. It's also how much return you get on that ad. So you put in a dollar on Facebook, um, how much money, how, how many websites are you, web, web visits are you getting on your Shopify store and how many customers do you actually get? And that's kind of unit economics at its core. Unit economics just means uh, for every dollar you put in, how many dollars are you getting back? Um, and I think uh, a good saying that I, I like is uh, by Warren Buffett, where he says, "When a manage, I think, when a management with a reputation uh, for brilliance tackles a business with a reputation for bad economics, it's the reputation of the business that remains intact." Um, and what this really means is just like if you have a bad business, uh, first of all, you probably shouldn't be taking clear bank capital, but just probably shouldn't be taking any capital. Um, because if you have a business where for every dollar you put in, you get back 90 cents, uh, no amount of capital will solve that problem. What you really need to do is kind of solve and fix the core unit economics of your business and solve the core business problem. Um, and then you could get more capital and try to grow the business. Um, and kind of back to your point, uh, the reason why we look at it so much is for e-commerce specifically, ad spend is usually one of the primary drivers of revenue. And that's why it's a, it's one of the key metrics we pay so much attention to. Okay. Um, in a TechCrunch article, I read that ClearBank wanted to back 2,000 businesses with a billion dollars in non-dilutive capital by the end of 2019. Did you meet your goal, and what did you learn from that experience, from you know having that goal and trying to achieve it? Yeah, that that was a that was a pretty ambitious goal. I'm, I'm pleased to say that we we did hit it. Um, wow. So we funded over 2,000 companies across U.S., Canada, and U.K. now, um, and we've deployed over a billion dollars uh, uh, to date. And I think one of the key learnings that uh, that uh, that that um, well, I guess when we first set that go and kind of were looking at just the industry statistics, um, so like 80% of venture capital, for example, goes to four states, uh, the four kind of big states in the U.S. And then there's a bunch of states that kind of rarely gets any funding. Um, 
And I think the, 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 our initial kind of, what we were trying to kind of figure out, like, why is that the case and all of that? Um, and I think the naive uh, explanation will be, well, are there good founders or are there good, you know, businesses in those states? Um, the answer is, we've come to learn, uh, yes, <laughs> there, there are some great, phenomenal uh, entrepreneurs uh, in all sorts of industries and in, in, this, in every state. Um, and I think uh, as, as humans, we're often biased towards kind of certain personas as the right fit, you know, kind of like, uh, like you, need a, you need a hacker, you need a designer, you need a hustler uh, for every company. And there's kind of that, that formula that we're taught in business school, at least. Um, but in reality, I think what we learn is that you really just need um, a business that's solving a problem and you have customers paying for it. That, that's kind of what defines a business, right? Uh, so we've, been, we've, we've found some, like there's been a lot of businesses that's really surprised me that I would have never expected um, that are phenomenal entrepreneurs and, and great businesses. Um, in another article, like this one on Crunchbase, I read that to date the firm has funded eight times more female founders than the venture capital industry average. Why do you think you've been able to pull that off? Is there uh, is this something you guys actively were thinking about in the early days? Yeah, so um, I think the, sh the short answer is we, we didn't think uh, we would fund uh, eight times more than, uh, than than the average. It was not something that we purposely engineered or aimed for. Um, it was more something we looked back at the data and was very pleasantly surprised by it. Um, so our, our funding decisions are entirely data-driven. Uh, so what, what's nice about that is it kind of takes the bias out of decision-making. Like we don't, um, we don't look at, you know, what gender they are, what, what race they are from, or what, what even uh, geography they come from. So as a result, it kind of just lets the, the quality of the business speak for itself. We plug in the data, we run through the numbers, and we can present them with offers. Um, so we actually found ourselves funding kind of a lot of these businesses that I think traditionally would have been kind of written off. Um, if a founder doesn't have a prestigious pedigree, no network, or even just kind of like cities that don't have a very strong venture ecosystem, um, oftentimes gets penalized in, in the in, uh, generally speaking. But as a result, in our case, we funded um, companies in actually every single state now, uh, as well as kind of the, the, the stat you mentioned in terms of 8x more, more women in the industry norm. That's fascinating. Your, your answer to this question and the previous question really reminds me of the movie Moneyball. Have you watched it? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Moneyball. One of my favorite movies. Yeah. This is totally like that. Like normally, I guess, um, like you mentioned, 80% of the funding goes to four different states. And then yeah. there's the whole, there's the gender thing. And you guys, just because you're only looking at the data, you, you're looking at undervalued uh, assets effectively by, by looking at these entrepreneurs who usually don't get the time of day. Exactly. Exactly. And th that's been a... Um, been, been yeah really motivating for us when we find these these businesses that actually been rejected by traditional capital but you know but they're actually great businesses um i love seeing these kind of stories so what are some of these stories who are some of your uh favorite portfolio companies and why um there's so many <laughs> there's uh there's certain portfolio companies that i subscribe to myself just because i like their products um there's this one called boxu where they have these like uh, Asian snacks that they, they package as a subscription box um, monthly. Um, that, uh, uh, that that they're, they're very good snacks. <laughs> but um, I'd say uh, one of my favorite stories is uh, um, probably this uh, 
this uh, is kind of tying into that previous point, uh, this company called Farm Girl, Farm Girl Flowers. Um, they're a hand curated flower delivery, very beautiful bouquets. And um, what, what really, what, the reason I really like this uh, th this company is really because of the, the founder's uh, stories and it, it's very inspiring. So the founder um, doesn't have, uh, never went to college, um, doesn't kind of have the network of uh, um, kind of the, the, the investor network, nor did she have kind of the, the pedigree, I guess you need um, of a typical Silicon Valley startup. Uh, and her, she started her whole, whole company at a $49,000 from just her savings and bootstrapped it because at that time, you know, investors wouldn't fund, didn't want to fund another flower delivery company. Um, she, so she bootstrapped it, built it out of her bedroom. And uh, now she's, uh, she, I think last year or this year, she's on track to do over $30 million a year. Um, and it's, it's, it's amazing how, how great of a business she's built. Uh, so, so these, these kind of, uh, whenever I come across founders like these, they motivate me and they kind of uh, motivate me to wake up and keep building ClearBank for them. Um, there's also other businesses that we fund that are more traditional. So for example, uh, there's this company called Vinebox. Uh, they sell wine by the glass uh, subscription service and um, they are YC backed. Uh, and for them, it was a great, uh, it was a great kind of like, um, it was a great partnership because uh, essentially we were able to help them double their valuation uh, because they they saw we we were essentially able to pour uh, growth capital onto what their business model was already a phenomenal working business model. They grew their revenue by five x and then raised the Series A. That's a great story. Um, so so Baksu, the farm girl. Could you give us one yeah. more? Uh, uh, Vinebox. And what does Vinebox do? Uh, Vinebox is the their YC back company. Um, they sell wine by the glass. Uh, it's kind of a subscription service. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, the last section of questions I want to ask you about is your own personal development. So the, the first one is, what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And this could be an investment of time or money or energy? I guess aside from companies I've invested in, um, the the best investments by far are probably the learning or relationships. Like I find those last. Like I've never regretted spending time on either buying a, a book. I, I read a lot of, I guess, listen, I suppose, to a lot of audibles um, or like, uh, like playing board games with friends. Um, I'd say one thing that I spend a lot of my time, which is something I value a lot, is uh, time into kind of learning, uh, and especially learning things that uh, I I don't uh, like er new areas that uh, like our company or needs to get into. So for ex for example, learning to code, learning data science, um, uh, most recently kind of learning how credit cards really work. Uh, it's it's kind of really gotten to understand both the intricacies of each of these different, I suppose, domains or verticals, uh, but really helped me kind of broaden the understanding of even what's possible, which is very helpful when you're thinking about building products or kind of building solutions for, for customers. Um, if anyone uh, wants to kind of get into fintech, one thing I'd uh, recommend is uh, to read up on the credit card lifecycle. It's, uh, it's quite fascinating because you kind of, you know, when you tap that card, there's 
you know, it takes a couple like milliseconds, I suppose, for the transaction to finish. But there's actually four or five different. There's a lot of moving pieces in the behind the scenes to actually make that work. Okay. Now, as you mentioned, you studied uh, finance at McGill.、Uh, yep. You've obviously probably spent at least some time thinking about、uh, the education system itself, and you know where you've come since college, and some of the advice that you got since then, and what advice was useful or wasn't useful. What advice would you give to a, a smart, driven college student about to enter the real world, and what advice should they ignore? So that's a good question. I I think I go back to the um what what advice I would I would give would be to find problems and solve them. And I think the important part is don't be afraid to fail.、Uh, and、uh, like. To put some numbers behind it, I, th- I think actually expect probably like a twenty to thirty percent success rate, and that and that's okay.、Um, like I think I probably average a probably something like twenty percent success rate with all the different ideas or solutions I come up with.、Um, and I had this as kind of a I guess a misconception early in my career that I thought every solution that I came out with need to be、uh, need to be right.、Um, but in fact, it's kind of the learning and the, the iterative process that's really behind it that makes the difference. If in fact, if I found that if you, if you,、uh, if you do something and you kind of like learn and own up to your mistake and just move on and keep moving on, I think the other important part is keep moving on with the same level of enthusiasm.、Uh, you will definitely become one of the most successful people、um, in the long run. And I think the、uh, the other part is really just like if the the other thing to recognize、um, is. That if you want to grow and take on more ownership, then by definition,、uh, like if, for example, you want to get promoted or if you want to grow your business,、um, by definition, you need to do something that's outside of your responsibilities today, right? Because if you keep doing the same things that you're doing today, well, then you're not taking on more. You're not growing, nor will your business change if you do the exact same things you're today. So I think it, it's to recognize that in order to grow or in order to take on more ownership, by definition, you have to do more than. Today's your, your job definition today,、uh, and I think,、um, yeah, I think I think the the、um, the the piece of advice. I'm not really sure if this is a、uh, um, if this is advice that people give, but definitely a misconception or、um, something to、uh, for people to think about is when when I started my career.、Um, There was this kind of, I guess, notion that、uh, you had to follow. There's kind of this career ladder, right? If you want to,、um, the best place to go is go into consulting or banking. After two years, then you will work in, in venture capital. Wait for two years, you do your MBA, and there's kind of、um, the optimal path, if you will.、Um, but I think the what I've learned along the way is don't be afraid to kind of、uh, like reach for what you really want, because the real reason that Um, you know, you don't get hired、uh, for a certain role, or people say no, is because you will you haven't been able to prove value.、Uh, and uh, th- I mean, one answer to that is, well, the how can I prove value? I'm still I'm, I'm in the interview phase, or they haven't worked with me. Like that that is true,、uh, but you'll find kind of like you could really take a step back and probably figure out ways to to prove value. So and I think that differs. So for example.、Um, 
the value for a startup CEO is different from that of a VC partner. If you could kind of, for example, so so a couple of maybe more practical examples. I would recommend to anyone who wants a job at a startup, like go to that startup's website, run through their signup flow, and you'll notice mistakes or things, areas that you felt wasn't a great user experience. They all exist. Um, take screenshots, suggest what you would do differently, and email that to the CEO. Um, alternatively, for example, VCs, like go find them deals that matches their investment thesis and put together like an investment summary and send that over. Uh, and of course, don't expect this to work on on everyone, nor will it work every time. Like, like remember I said, it'll probably be like a 20% success rate or so. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at is the, uh, don't really necessarily do follow the traditional kind of ladder, if you will, and uh, don't really need to wait for their approval or get that thumbs up from that VC partner before you could do something like this because they, they won't give you that thumbs up, right? Um, they'll be like, go through the interview flow. Uh, but if you keep doing that, uh, I think that that saying is very true. I think Buffett said that where um, in the short term, you know, it, it, it's a voting machine where you might be determined by your pedigree, your interview skills, your fancy background. But in the long run, I truly believe the world is a weighing machine and it's based on how much value you bring. Okay. Um, what purchase of $100 or less has most positively impacted your life in recent memory? Recent memory. I mean, we've been stuck at home for like the last uh, eight weeks. So uh, yeah. I'd say uh, probably the, the, the best purchase has been um, these... Uh, actually these online social games there's there's one that's called jackbox i'm not sure if you heard of it um there they, they kind of just be played with our with our team and kind of allowed us to um uh to to have those more normal interactions that you normally wouldn't have because everyone's kind of cooped out uh, uh in their house um so during these times during kind of covid uh, i think uh, more than ever it's it's been great to kind of catch up with your friends over Zoom or video chat of some sort. Um, and even actually catching up with kind of old friends that normally I'd let kind of distance be an excuse to. Uh, so that's been one of the, that's been a great purchase. And as a, as a result, excuse to kind of catch up with, uh, with friends. And and how do we uh, play this game? Is it a mobile game or is there a website? Yeah, it's a, it's a website. I think it's called jackbox.tv. And uh, um, it, it just allows you to have you and you know multiple friends to kind of uh, all play it at the same time, and they're they're simple games, kind of like Pictionary or uh, games like that. Uh, that uh, um, I think classics, I guess. All right, sweet. Uh, what are some books that have that you would say have greatly influenced your life? I'm probably more of a. I think nowadays I read a lot more blogs uh, than than okay. books. Um, yeah, so I'm open to example, blogs. Yeah, so, so Paul Graham uh, has some great pieces. If anyone who's kind of getting into startups, I would heavily recommend um, some of his pieces. Uh, and I think also Naval from uh, Naval, that's N-A-V-A-L, uh, founder of AngelList. Um, mm -hmm. He writes more, less mix of startups, but more so just kind of life in, in general, more from a, uh, I guess, a startup founder's lens. Um, I say favorite book is uh, actually by, by Scott Adams. Uh, he, had, he wrote a book called um, How to Fail at Everything and Still Win Big. So Scott Adams, uh, founder of Dilber, uh, he kind of talks about how he's not a great artist, 
uh, and he's also not that great of a comedian. Um, and he had kind of like an average career in tech and corporate. Uh, but he's kind of figured out a way to combine all these uh, and create uh, Dober, something quite truly unique. Um, and I think that book really resonated with me uh, because kind of coming out of school, um, I was kind of in a similar shoes where I, I studied business. I was in Bronfman, uh, know some finance. And I, I mean, like I wasn't at the top of my class, but I, I know how to do the models and such. Uh, I also knew math and stats, but I mean, there was peers of mine that were uh, quants, so much better than me. Um, also knew a bit of coding, uh, but couldn't get a job as a developer. Um, but kind of like figured out a way to make it all kind of, I guess, work and found a, found a way uh, where I could figure out my, my unique way to add value, solve problems. Um, so like, uh, I think that's really kind of motivated me to like not let your job description confine you, but rather use that as a starting point and kind of mold, mold your own, I guess, path in terms of uh, what skill sets you bring to the table and how they could add the most value to whatever problem you're trying to solve. Great. Um, do you have any calls to action for listeners uh, regarding ClearBank? Like, you know, how can people uh, apply to be uh, one of your portfolio companies and where can they find out more? Yeah, so if they go to uh, clearbank.com, uh, so, uh, I'm sure you'll have, you'll have a link, um, that they could just apply directly from the site, um, to, uh, for, for an application the, the process is quite simple. You connect your, your data sources and that's about it. Uh, and, um, and, uh, it's, uh, and then we'll give you a call back. Um, and I think for any, uh, like any, any founders out there that are kind of working on their business, um, it's definitely a hard time. Uh, but I think grit and perseverance has always helped me get a, uh, go a long way. And I'm always happy to chat with kind of uh, people who are fellow founders. We're all kind of struggling through the same things. The ups and downs are all the same, whether you're a bigger company or a smaller company. Um, we're all kind of learning. All right. Thank you so much, Charlie. Hey, thanks, Mo. And that marks the end of our conversation. To learn more about ClearBank or join their portfolio, visit clearbank.com. That's clearbanc.com. Hey, it's Mo. I hope you enjoyed that story. If you want easier access to upcoming episodes of Made at McGill, I recommend you subscribe to this podcast on whatever app you use. Also, do you have a wantrepreneur in your life? Maybe your Uncle Bill, who's always talking about his grand business ideas. Consider this. Find one episode in this podcast that you think could give them a slight push, the little nudge that they need to begin their journey as a maker, and have them listen to that episode. And if Uncle Bill ends up turning into the next Bill Gates, who changes the world and along the way becomes a genius billionaire philanthropist, hey, you can take all the credit. Thanks for listening.